This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode 10. We're interviewing Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, president of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of natural scientists, economists, Christian theologians, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the gospel. Dr. Beisner introduces himself and the work of the Cornwall Alliance, and we have a bonus audio with more information about that on the show notes page. We then discuss climate alarmism in contrast with genuine scientific study of Earth's climate system. We also talk about the United Nations and the United States government's destructive net zero carbon emissions policies and the environmental Kuznets curve. Dr. Beisner earned his PhD in History of Scottish Political Thought from the University of St. Andrews, Scotland in 2003, with a dissertation on James Stewart of Goodtrees and Covenanter Resistance Theory. He is the author of many books, some of which we'll link to in the show notes, along with the other resources we mention. Now living in Western Tennessee, Dr. Beisner is a husband to Debbie, a father of seven and grandfather of 15. Dr. Beisner, thanks for joining us. Would you tell us about yourself, how you became reformed, about your previous work, and how the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation got started? I would say that the most important thing about me is just that I have been passionate for the gospel of Christ and the truth of Scripture since my conversion back in 1969. And early on, as a Christian, I became passionate for, and I remain passionate for, one-on-one personal evangelism and for apologetics to serve that. Even early in high school, I was witnessing all the time to friends, and of course, I would run into objections, and every time I ran into objection, I would run to a Christian bookstore and find a book that would help me to answer that. And over and over again, I kept finding that the answers that were the most satisfactory on theological and philosophical matters were coming from Reformed thinkers. Meanwhile, I was just doing personal devotions also and reading through commentaries, and at one point, uh, over about a seven or eight month period between freshman and and sophomore years in high school, I was having my devotions through the book of Romans. And I was reading, I think, seven or eight different commentaries from various different perspectives. And it was just very clear as I got to chapters nine through 11, that those who were not coming from a reformed perspective were running from the obvious meaning of the text. And so that was when I embraced what was the Reformed faith. But I had been raised, by the way, in the United Methodist Church and really didn't know anything much about denominations or any of this sort of thing. And so here I was, you could say I was Calvinistic in terms of soteriology. And it was about another decade or so before I read a lot more in Reformed work and 
became more broadly speaking reformed in not just soteriology, but ecclesiology, uh, sacramentology, uh, the understanding of the relationship between the two testaments and so on. And then much later in terms of political philosophy as well. In early 1980s, I was meeting for breakfast with a pastor friend once a week. We would pray together. We would read books and discuss them together. And one day he showed up with a copy of Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, in hand and said, Cal, you have to read this book. It will change your life. I had had zero interest in economics, politics, finance, anything of that sort prior to then. And I still had none. And I told him so. And I just said, no, I'm not going to waste my time reading that. And he kept pressuring me for months. And so finally, I broke down and I read the book. Well, I had read many, many commentaries on the Bible and books on biblical hermeneutics and the like, and lots of philosophy and had studied logic a lot. And as I read the book, I kept thinking to myself, wow, this really doesn't seem to be interpreting scripture very well. And these arguments don't seem to be logically valid, but I don't know anything about economics. I wonder if he has messed up his economics as badly as he had his, his Bible and his logic. So I did my standard thing. I went to a bookstore and bought a stack of books this time on economics. And I read through all of these various texts on economics and decided that Sider had, had blown his economics at least as badly. The book was uh, very pro-socialist. And when I finished studying those, I thought to myself, you know, if this book is really influential, and by the way, it did turn out very influential. Just a few years ago, Christianity Today named it the most influential evangelical book published in the last 50 years, which I think is a very sad thing. But I figured if, if this is really influential and lots of evangelicals embrace this, people could do a lot of harm with the very best of intentions. And so somebody needs to be writing something of a critique of this. So I began exploring how I might do that. That's what led to my master's degree program under the tutelage of the late Dr. Russell Kirk, who was a great man of letters, uh, historian, philosopher, political thinker. And I had met him and I learned that he took private tutorial students and told him I'd like to write on uh, biblical theology of political economics. And he invited me to do a master's program under him doing exactly that. So that in turn led to my being invited to work with the, uh, you know, what was called the Coalition on Revival, uh, which was an outgrowth of the International Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. And with the Coalition on Revival, I was asked to chair a committee on economics. The aim of the coalition was to produce white papers, really, on the application of biblical worldview, theology, and ethics to various different spheres of life, law, government, economics, psychology, philosophy, the arts, media, and so on. After the three years and input by about 120 different scholars, we produced our white paper, and then Marvin Alasky and Herbert Schlossberg, Alasky at the time was professor of journalism at the University of Austin, and Schlossberg was author of the marvelous book, Idols for Destruction, which really should have been the most influential evangelical book of the last 50, 50 years. They asked me if I would write a book on economics, an introduction to economics from a biblical worldview perspective for the series of the Turning Point Christian Worldview series for Crossway Books. 
And that's what became Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in the World of Scarcity, which was published in 1988. One chapter of that was supposed to deal with population, resources, and the environment. And as I worked on that, I just told Marvin and Herb that there was no way that that could be done in a chapter. And so they said, okay, so just do another book just on that. That led to Prospects for Growth, a biblical view of population resources in the future in 1990. And those led to my beginning to be known as a scholar on, call it creation stewardship, environmental stewardship from a biblical perspective. That, as well as my my work in economics, those two led to my being asked to teach at Covenant College, where I started in 92. R.C. Sproul heard me lecture one time at a seminar up in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And at the time, he was serving on the board of Knox Theological Seminary. And he determined that when they had another opening there, they, they should ask me if, they, if I would fill it. And about two years later, they did. And so they asked me to come down and be the uh, associate professor of historical theology and social ethics. But I also taught apologetics and almost everything in systematic theology and logic and political philosophy and several other courses as well. So I did that till 2008. In 1999, I worked together with a all-volunteer, all of this, uh, you know, on the side, with about 35 other, mostly Christian, some Jewish scholars on environmental stewardship to produce what became known as the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship, made public in March of 2000. And in 2005, a few of us decided, hey, let's actually start a bit of an organization, very informal, to try to promote those ideas. And by 2007, we had enough traction that it was becoming, for me anyway, the equivalent of about a half-time job. And at the same time, I was planting a church for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So I eventually left Knox Theological Seminary when there was a major transition in leadership there. And a couple of years later, the church had its own pastor, and I was able to go full-time with Cornwall Alliance from there on out. And would you say a word, Dr. Beisner? about why the work of the Cornwall Alliance is so important. One of the things that I have seen as a weakness in much Christian and including evangelical activity, scholarship, writing, speaking, teaching on environmental stewardship is a failure to dig deeply into the science, the engineering, the economics, the policy and policy consequences of the issues that are involved. So that basically what we have is a great deal of, I love God, I love his creation, I therefore want to protect his creation, therefore we need to do this. I love God, I love the poor, I want to protect the poor, therefore we need to do that. And there's a huge jump between the first two, I love, I love, and the therefore we need to do this. And in that jump, there's an assumption of an awful lot of things about scientific claims of fact, engineering capacities, engineering realities, and economic consequences that just tend not to be carefully examined. A classic example of that, back in 2005 and six, the Evangelical Environmental Network 
which grew out of, uh, it was actually one of the original parts of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, which was co-founded in 1994 by James Parks Morton, who at the time was the dean of the Episcopal Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City, who annually did a baptismal service for animals from the zoo and was very much a New Age type fellow. Uh, he and Carl Sagan of Cosmos fame, you know, the Cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, co-founded the NRPE. And it's rather interesting that you have this New Ager and this atheist Marxist scientist co-founding the NRPE. And the EEN was a part of that. Well, in 2005 and six, the EEN got thoroughly onto the global warming alarmist bandwagon. And it issued a statement called Climate Change and Evangelical Call to Action, which was written by David Gushy, who at the time was ethics professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And they managed to get 86 big-name Christian evangelical leaders, college presidents, mission presidents, et cetera, to sign on to this. And basically what it said was human emissions of carbon dioxide are causing catastrophically dangerous climate change. That is going to harm the poor more than anybody else. Therefore, we must embrace the agenda of drastic cuts in CO2 emissions, replacing fossil fuels with wind and solar and other renewable energy sources. Well, I read the thing, and by this time I had read many, many books on and hundreds of articles on the climate change movement and the claims and so on by various scientists. And I just recognized right away that this was deeply lacking in scientific basis. And so with several friends, Dr. Roy Spencer, who was who is still principal research scientist in climate at the University of Alabama and in Huntsville, a NASA award-winning scientist for his work monitoring and managing the satellite global temperature monitoring system, and Dr. Ross McKittrick, who's an evangelical and environmental economist at the University of Guelph in Ontario, and Paul Dreesen, a Jewish man who's an expert on energy policy. Uh, we put together a paper that responded to that called A Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor, a response to the Evangelical Climate Initiative. And rather than look for endorsements from big-name leaders, most of whom would have known next to nothing about the issues involved, we looked for endorsements from appropriately credentialed and focused scientists and economists and the like. And we came up with 150 initially, and over the years after that, many, many more. And that led to an invitation from a chemistry professor at Union University for me to debate David Gushy, who had authored that statement. And we did that. And this has all been lead up to this as perfect illustration of the failure of people to fill in the gap between I love God and I love his creation, and therefore we must you know, quit using fossil fuels or something like that. As he and I were walking down the hallway toward the auditorium where we were to debate, he said to me, you know, I never realized how complicated the, or complex, I think was the word he used, uh, the science of climate change was until I began preparing for this debate. We really need, as Christians, 
to distinguish between motive and proper reasoning for what we want to do. And so that's what I've tried to emphasize all through the history of the Cornwall Alliance. It's why we have roughly a third of our almost 70 different scholars now in the network are natural scientists, including some of the world's very top climate scientists. Roughly a third are economists, most of them specializing in either environmental or developmental economics. And roughly a third of theologians, philosophers, ethicists, and ministry leaders. And we try to weave all of those things together so that we are not falling into the trap of best of motives, worst of consequences. Dr. Beisner, the purpose of the Cornwall Alliance is to educate for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the gospel. Can you tell us some of the primary ways that the Cornwall Alliance does this? Well, we provide speakers for churches and conferences, schools, colleges, things like that, uh, expert witnesses for congressional and state legislative committees dealing with potential legislation or regulation about environmental and sometimes economic developmental issues, though those tend to be more third world or developing world matters. We have a website, of course, cornwallalliance.org, where we have hundreds of articles and a fairly large number of major papers published there. We add articles pretty close to once a day to our blog there. We have a Facebook page, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. We actually have two different YouTube channels, one of which is defunct. The one that you really want to go to is use the full name Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, and then you will come to our YouTube page that has a large number of videos on it, some one-offs, others series teaching about these things in order to reach, I think, a larger audience more conveniently with our podcast called Created to Raid. And that's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and you know, essentially any any platform from which people want to find it. So we, we do those. And uh, we also write opinion pieces and other articles that are published in a wide variety of different online mostly, but some print publications as well. So I, I guess that's probably about it. Uh, we're also available, frankly, to answer questions uh, when people just have questions about this thing. They can write to stewards at cornwallalliance.org, and we can provide individualized answers for things like that. Some of those lead to Creative Terrain podcast programs or to blog posts. We also have a Twitter presence at Cornwall Stewards. And the best way to access the various social media would be from the Cornwall Alliance website? Uh, yeah, cornwallalliance.org. We're actually, uh, we're a little bit low-tech, so we're in the process of putting appropriate good links on the website to get straight to those other things. But if people just remember the name Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship Creation, they can find us easily enough on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. We'd like to talk a little bit more specifically about climate change alarmism. And yes. let me put the claim, so to speak, to you and get your response if this is the basic idea. 
And then perhaps we can discuss some specifics about why the basis for that claim is wrong and sure. something along the lines of what's the real agenda or perhaps what our response should be and resources available for responding. So as I've perceived it, the primary claim of the climate change or global warming alarmists might be that burning fossil fuels, which I take to be coal and gasoline, I don't know if there's any major... Coal, oil, and natural gas. Okay. And natural gas, okay. Uh, Increases carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which will in X number of years as the claim goes, whatever it is, warm the average temperature of the planet, I guess as a whole, X number of degrees, and will have disastrous effects in this time frame, such as causing the oceans to rise. I guess the immediate cause of that would be the melting of polar ice, the oceans rising, that then killing millions of people and also somehow thousands of species in a mass yes. extinction event. And is, is, this the, is this the fundamental climate change, global warming alarmist idea? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you'll get from people like Greta Thunberg, the Swedish young lady who sadly, I think, has been horribly exploited by those who are using her to play the heartstrings of the world on this issue. So that you'll get this message from people like Greta, from people like Al Gore and others. Frankly, you, you won't get it from more than a handful of actual climate scientists. And that handful tends not even to be very warmly embraced by other climate scientists. So there are various positions on this, uh, as there are on any good interesting scientific subject. (laughs) Um, uh, Anybody who talks in terms of, for instance, the claim that, well, 97% of all scientists agree global warming is real, human beings are causing it, and it's going to be dangerous, and we have to spend trillions of dollars completely revamping the entire global economy and all of its energy infrastructure to prevent this or, you know, existential threat, (laughs) right? Anybody who claims that proves instantly that he doesn't know the actual scientific literature involved or the economic literature involved, because both of those disciplines are, are heavily relevant to all of this. Though these are the talking points for politicians and media personalities, right? Right. These are the media and politician talking points. Yeah. And they're terribly divorced from the actual scientific work. Now, let me try to just give you some pretty non-controversial scientific facts about this. First, if there were no greenhouse effect whatsoever, the Earth would be an ice ball because it wouldn't be absorbing, it wouldn't be holding in enough of the energy of solar radiation to keep it from being that. Now, with the mix of so-called greenhouse gases, properly called infrared absorbing gases, the Earth's global average temperature, say at the beginning of the 20th century, 
was around 59 degrees Fahrenheit. That's global average temperature, averaged all year round, you know, night to day, all latitudes, all longitudes, etc. And that's reasonably comfortable. Uh, it's a little too cool for people to be comfortable without any protection, but we can we can deal with that. If you add some of an infrared absorbing gas to the atmosphere, because it absorbs infrared, that is heat, that is bouncing from the surface of the Earth back out into space and re-radiates that, some of it back to the surface of the Earth, it follows by basic physics that adding that gas to the atmosphere is going to make the surface of the Earth a little warmer than it otherwise would be. That's basic physics. But it's also basic physics, by the way, that if you drop a rock and a feather at the same moment from the same altitude, they'll hit the ground at the same moment. Unless they're in air, in which case the rock drops very precipitously and the feather kind of wafts down slowly. And if it's windy, the feather might blow up into a tree and get stuck and never come down, right? So basic physics doesn't really answer many questions about this. The, the climate system is far more complicated than basic physics. Indeed, some scientists will say it's probably the most complex natural system we've ever studied, with the exception of the human brain and DNA. And there are literally hundreds of factors, thousands of factors in the climate system that we don't understand. Many of them, we assume, we've not even identified yet. Many of those that we have identified, we don't know whether they would be positive or negative feedbacks on the warming that you get from initially added infrared-absorbing gas. Positive feedback would increase that direct warming effect, and a negative feedback would decrease it. And so we build computer models by which we try to, well, it's called parameterizing. We put in numbers to represent what we think might be those feedbacks. And then we run these models. They're extremely sophisticated, uh, so much so that they require the world's fastest supercomputers to run well. And based on those models, we come up with various guesses, really. I mean, they're highly educated guesses, but they're still guesses as to how much warming you would get from adding how much of a given greenhouse gas. Uh, CO2 is the primary one that people are talking about because we emit that when we burn fossil fuels and when we make concrete and a variety of other activities that we do. Clear back in the 1800s, Svante Arrhenius, who was a Swedish chemist, calculated that a doubling of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere would probably increase global average surface temperature by about 3 degrees Celsius. That would be about 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And by the way, he also understood, though not as well as we do now, that the warming would happen more toward the poles than toward the equator, more in the winter than in the summer and more at night than during the day. There are a variety of different atmospheric chemistry matters that explain why that is so, but that is fully understood by climate scientists all over. And that three-degree figure is actually pretty close. This was before there were any computers. 
But that was actually pretty close to the findings of most of our computer models running all the way from 1978 to the present. Now, what we do know, I think, on the basis of very, very firm physics, the Stefan Boltzmann equation, is that the direct warming from a doubling of CO2 content in the atmosphere would be roughly 1 to 1.1 degrees Celsius. So in order to come up with 3 degrees as what's called climate sensitivity, you have to assume that the net impact of all the various different feedback mechanisms, thousands of them, is strongly positive, more than doubling the initial warming. But there are a number of reasons to think that that's not the case. One is that, frankly, one of the basic principles in natural science understood for centuries has been that natural systems do seem to be dominated by negative feedback mechanisms. And there's actually a fairly common sense way to understand why that is probably so. And it's because if, if a system is dominated by positive feedback mechanisms, then as soon as you have a new influence brought into that system, it's going to set off a positive feedback loop that will lead to a runaway feedback, which ultimately will just blow the whole system to pieces, all right? Well, that's not what we see in the world around us. Instead, we see far and away the dominance of negative feedback systems. So that's the first reason to doubt that. The second reason to doubt that is that specifically with the, the climate system, we know from geologic history from the chemical content of ice layers, from the chemical content and growth rates of stalagmites and stalactites and all sorts of other things, the, the chemical content of seabed sediments, we know that there have been very large changes in global average infrared gas concentrations, especially CO2, and that those have not correlated positively with specifically warming effect over either long or short terms. And what that suggests is, and I think it suggests it very strongly, is that there must be some feedback mechanisms that are preventing this positive feedback loop. And probably the best hypothesis at this point, uh, maybe close to a theory by now, of what's doing that is cloud cover. Clouds, by reflecting sunlight back into space, cool the Earth when they're low level. High level clouds, stratospheric clouds, actually warm the Earth by letting solar radiation through, but preventing some infrared from getting back out to space. And the work of Dr. Richard Lindzen at MIT, one of the world's foremost atmospheric physicists and meteorologists, and the work of Dr. Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, who is a senior fellow and a board member of the Cornwall Alliance, uh, have both shown very clearly, not just through theory and modeling, but through actual empirical observation Spencer's work, especially using the satellites that he gets to control in part through NASA to measure the response of clouds. If 
clouds were a positive feedback, then if you had a little bit of warming at the surface, clouds would change so as to enhance that warming, to increase it. But instead, what he found actually using satellite measuring systems was that clouds respond to warming at the surface by increasing low-level clouds, which cool the surface, and decreasing high-level clouds, which warm the surface. They respond to cooling at the surface by decreasing low-level clouds and increasing high-level clouds. So in essence, the clouds work as a thermostat to keep global average temperature within a fairly narrow range. So, I mean, that's, that's some fairly basic science on this stuff. Over the years, I've read about 60 books on the science of climate change and many thousands of articles. But that's a, a summary. Now, the claim that this is generating dangerous to catastrophic, maybe existential threat risks for us, you will not find that even in the what are called the, the periodic assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on climate, climate Change, which operates under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the World Meteorological Organization. And which, by the way, though it does incorporate the work of a good many scientists, is not, in fact, a scientific body. Notice the title, Intergovernmental panel on climate change. And fascinatingly enough, although scientists put together the big scientific assessments that run thousands of pages and sort of summarize the findings of the most important refereed literature over the past five or six years, it is government bureaucrat and appointees who put together the summaries for policymakers. And those summaries for policymakers are the only thing that the policymakers and journalists ever read if they even read those, more often they just simply read the press releases that get sent out from the UN, which are far more alarmist than the summaries. Anyway, you will not find this crisis, this catastrophe, this existential threat language anywhere in the actual scientific assessment reports. You won't even find it in the summaries for policymakers. You find it only in the press releases, and the public statements of UN leaders. And that, to me, reveals that there is a major divorce between the scientific work and the political agendas that are involved. And I think that's part of what you were starting to point to in some of your, your question there. Yes, and we will find some particular articles either available on the Cornwall Alliance website or other ones that you might recommend as recommended reading for our listeners to maybe get some of this basic idea of response that you're talking about. Let me mention a couple of things to you. Dr. David Legates, who is recently retired professor of climatology at the University of Delaware, really one of the leading scholars in the field. He's an author, a co-author of over 200 referee journal publications in the field. That's pretty remarkable. David is our director of research and education, and he and I just recently finished editing a book that will be coming out late next year from Regnery on uh, climate change, climate science, the economics and, and policy related to that. 16 chapters and 15 different authors. 
and I think that's going to be very, very helpful. We don't have a title settled on it yet, but there's that that's coming. But also, and you mentioned that this might be airing perhaps in January or February, February 23 through 25, I think it is, in Orlando, Florida, is the 15th International Conference on Climate Change hosted by the Heartland Institute. And Cornwall Alliance is a, a co-host of that or a co-sponsor of that. And both Dr. Legates and I and some other Cornwall Alliance-related scholars are going to be speaking there. So as co-sponsors, we want to promote that. It, it is a great place for people to come to hear the climate realist perspective from solid scientists, solid economists, solid policy analysts. Excellent. We'll look out for that book and the upcoming conference. So you had described the difference between what the climate scientists are doing and saying and the political agendas, the, the policymakers. I wonder if you might explain um, briefly what this net zero by 2050 policy is. Well, uh, first off, net zero by any date is arbitrary. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but of course, too, I mean, that's the, that's the reality of making policy. Eventually, you have to get away from generalizations and set specific dates and specific amounts and so on. But th there's no rational defense of saying, okay, to save the world, we're going to make net zero emissions of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide and ozone and various other uh, so-called greenhouse gases. You know, you might as well aim for 2060 or 2040 or 2080 or 2030, whatever. Uh, so first, it's arbitrary. Second, it ain't going to happen. It's just simply not going to happen. And if, if anything is pointing toward that, the debacle that we're seeing in Europe right now with countries having a tough time providing electricity or natural gas or anything else to heat people's homes through the winter is indication of that. I mean, Germany, which has for more than 30 years been trying desperately to make wind and solar electricity generation sufficient in scale and in reliability to replace all of its fossil fuels in electricity generation. Germany has recently turned a wind factory. They're not farms, they're factories. Farms are where you grow, you know, plants and animals. Wind turbines are not that. Uh, besides that, they're ugly and farms are usually beautiful. But they've recently replaced a major wind factory field with coal mining. They've brought a bunch of coal generating plants back online. They've kept their nuclear plants online, though they had intended to get rid of them. They're actually planning to put more coal plants online. They're now having to buy natural gas from around the world through liquefied natural gas stations off the coast in the North Sea. It's not going to happen. You know, net zero by 2050 is not going to happen. There are a number of different reasons for that, and they're all rooted in the physics and the engineering of energy, the fundamental distinctions, plural, between high and low energy density and high and low intermittency. You want high density, you want low intermittency. 
And the problem is with wind and sunshine that it's not always windy and it's not always sunny. And consequently, you have intermittent generation of electricity into a grid that has to be kept stable within a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of a hundredth of an amp on a second-by-second basis. The, the, The engineering of this is one of the great marvels of the entire history of mankind. The more you feed into a grid intermittent sources, the more unstable you make the grid, unless you either back up that by having non-intermittent generating systems running at the same time in what's called spinning reserve, which is a low output by comparison with, with capacity and is therefore very, very inefficient, or by storing the electricity that's generated from wind and solar at high moments of production, but low moments of demand, either in batteries or in reservoirs, where you're using that energy to pump water uphill to a reservoir. And then when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, okay, you let the water down through turbines and you generate Uh, That, of course, means that you're wasting the energy that you're using to pump it uphill, right? And the batteries, in turn, are very, very low-density sources compared with oil and natural gas and even coal. And the principal cost in producing usable energy, especially electricity, is going from low-density and high intermittency to high density and low intermittency. The lower your source in density and the higher that source in intermittency, the greater the cost. And that cost is measured not just in monetary terms, it's measured in, okay, so how much more nickel or cobalt or rare earth minerals or whatever, How much more of those do we have to mine and refine and transport and work into machines in order to provide a stable grid from wind and solar than we do in order to provide a stable grid from oil, coal, or natural gas? And the answer is many times more. Mm -hmm. You have to mine a whole lot more earth to get the same gigawatt hours of electricity out of wind turbines or solar panels than you do out of natural gas or coal or oil. Mm. And that means that you're doing more environmental harm that way because of all that mining and all of the toxic chemicals that are run off in the process of, of refining and mining these. And your monetary cost is much higher. Some people will say, okay, but look, the cost per kilowatt hour of solar panel capacity has been falling dramatically over the last 20 years. That's true. It has been falling dramatically over the last 20 years, but it is still significantly higher than for the fossil fuels. And it will always remain so because we've essentially reached the point of law of diminishing returns on both the solar and the wind. But then besides that, 
they're forgetting that a part of the cost involved is government subsidies and tax incentives. And in the United States, anyway, wind and solar get anywhere from about 600 down to about 20 times as much in combined subsidies and tax incentives per megawatt hour of electricity produced, as do coal, oil, or natural gas. So, you know, people can look at their electricity bills and think, oh, this is not so bad. But the fact is that the electricity bill doesn't show those government subsidies and tax incentives. Mm -hmm. So, and then, of course, there's the problem, too, of what do you do with the spent solar panels and the spent turbines and the spent turbine generators, and the, the, the blades and the generators of wind turbines? None of this is, is economically recyclable. There are a lot of toxic chemicals in it. There, there are essentially no good plans for how to deal with all of this rubbish in the typically 15 to 20-year life cycles that these technologies have compared with, oh, 60 to 90 years for a typical coal plant or 80 to 100 years for a typical natural gas plant or, you know, 40 to 80 years for a typical nuclear reactor. So in all sorts of ways, for the environment, for economic well-being, we just can't make this transition that these governments are demanding that we make. And so, you know, then you, you go to these officials and you ask, well, how are you going to do this net zero? Well, we're going to do wind and solar here. And then for the electricity that we can't generate enough of, we're going to buy fossil fuel generated electricity from other countries. So essentially what they're doing is they are exporting their CO2 emissions. Right. They may reach net zero. Yeah. They won't actually, but even if they did, it wouldn't matter because they're just exporting their pollution, which is what a lot of countries have been, you know, advanced countries have been doing a long time anyway with a lot of manufacturing, offshoring that. And so the pollution that's associated with it goes to the poor countries rather than the wealthier countries. And then people complain about that. But in fact, what that means is that those poor countries are getting wealthy faster than they otherwise would, which means that then they can afford to clean up their environments too. So well, that's a good thing. This leads straight into my next question. Um, the Kuznets curve. You want to talk about oh, the, yes. the Kuznets curve? Uh, the, the environmental Kuznets curve basically illustrates this fundamental lesson of history that is well explained by economic theory. When a society makes a transition from subsistence agriculture to early industrialization, the emissions and the ambient concentrations of various different pollutants, toxic chemicals in the soil or the streams, air pollution, smog, ground-level ozone, things of that nature, soot, all of those things increase in early industrialization. Now, those things are dangerous to human health. And so you would think that with an increase in those things, you would have rising mortality rates, meaning falling life expectancy. And yet the opposite, historically, is what happened. Mm. And what we see is that in early industrialization, you have a very marked increase in life expectancy, a very marked decrease in mortality rates at any given age. And so why is that? 
Well, frankly, it's pretty obvious. Nobody builds a factory for the purpose of emitting soot into the air. Nobody builds a factory for the purpose of putting toxic chemicals into streams. People build factories for other purposes, to make tractors and automobiles and steam engines and all of these other things available in order to make food and clothing and shelter and transportation and healthcare and education and communication more affordable for everybody. And so all of these benefits that come from industrialization, it turns out, far outweigh the the harms that come from this early pollution. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, average human life expectancy at birth worldwide was about 27 to 28 years. The average infant and child mortality rate, that's the odds of dying before your fifth birthday, was about 50% all around the world. And by the way, it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, because there were no antibiotics. And every infection was life-threatening. Yeah. So that, for example, Queen Anne of England, the richest woman in the world, the richest person in the world at the time, quite likely, with all of the resources of the British Empire at her disposal, had 19 children. None of them survived to adulthood. Now, when that's your life, and you see that by mechanizing something so that you get a little bit more soot and smog in the air, yeah, that's uncomfortable. It makes you cough somewhat, and it might actually slightly diminish your life expectancy. Nonetheless, all the benefits of that industrialization lengthen your life expectancy so much more that you say, I'll put up with the smog. I'll put up with this, that, or another thing. Okay, that's the early part. But once you reach a stage where, okay, you're no longer worried about putting food on the table, clothes on the back, and a roof over the head, those have become routine. Now you think, gee, I don't like the way that smog hurts my lungs when I breathe. I don't like having, you know, sewage running down the street. Let's spend some money solving those problems. And we actually have the money to spend on top of staying alive. And so at that point, you begin to see a curbing of the emissions of various pollutants. And so the result is an inverted Kuznets curve. It actually looks something like a bell curve, a typical bell curve. In early industrialization, you increase pollution emission uh, rates and ambient pollution concentrations. By the time you're moving into a fairly highly advanced industrial society, we haven't even reached a primarily technological and information and service-based economy, those emission rates fall to below what they were before the industrialization began. Wow. And pretty soon, you have less of all that pollution remaining in the environment than before the industrialization. And as you go beyond early industrialization to higher technology and to a mainly service and and technology-oriented economy, you can have an extremely 
clean environment and still have very high levels of industry and so on. Now, most environmentalists think about this from a totally different perspective uh, that is captured in an equation that Paul Ehrlich coined. It's not truly an equation, but it sort of is. Um, it looks like one when it's written. I equals P-A-T. Mm. I stands for impact on the environment. It is always assumed that impact is negative. It's harmful. And then P stands for population. A for affluence and T for technology. So if I equals P times T times A, then it follows that as population grows, as affluence grows, as technology grows, you get more and more negative impact on the environment. And so if you care about the natural environment, obviously you're going to want to limit population you're going to want to limit affluence. You're going to want to limit technology. And this is why, frankly, a lot of the top environmental leaders around the world think that the optimal population level would be about 300 to 500 million people, which means we need to get rid of about 98% of us. They also think that the natural world would be much better off if humans lived in what's called harmony with nature. Which basically looks like either hunter-gatherer society or uh, subsistence agriculture. Well, that puts us back to 27 or 28 years average human life expectancy compared with the current roughly 70 years worldwide and 80 years in advanced economies. And we want low technology because high technology is always associated with more impact. Well, the actual truth is the opposite. And there are some underlying worldview or theology reasons for why this is so. Most environmentalists think of human beings as fundamentally consumers and polluters. We're using up the Earth's resources and we're poisoning the planet while we're at it. Whereas a biblical worldview tells us that human beings are created in God's image to be producers and stewards. And we can actually multiply resources rather than depleting them, and we can actually make the natural world an increasingly safe and beautiful and healthful place for humanity and the rest of creation by our activity using the minds and the bodies that God has given us in ways that honor him. And so the Cornwall Alliance, working out of Genesis 128, where God, having created Adam and Eve, male and female, blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. We look at the surrounding context and what God has done, bringing everything out of nothing, uh, light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life out of non-life, great abundance of life, telling every variety of life to be fruitful and multiply. We look at all of that and we say, well, human beings are supposed to do something similar. So our aim should be to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. And then we turn I equals PAT on its head mm. by 
saying, I should be understood as potentially overwhelmingly beneficial rather than harmful. Mm. And then as population, affluence, and technology grow, you get more and more beneficial impact instead of harmful impact. Wow. That's a really good illustration. I think there's plenty of evidence to show that capitalism or the free market, however you want to put that, has raised the entire world out of poverty and rather quickly. And so it just, it makes sense. I think if you're looking at the evidence, it makes sense, right? Yes. Right? Yes. So I think that's interesting. And so this is where your connection to poverty really comes in and your your heart for, yes. for, for the poor is in, you know, increasing that that human flourishing and increasing affluence and increasing technology because that's what's actually improving life for for everybody. That's exactly right. The the tragic thing is that the climate alarmist movement by insisting that we move away from the most abundant, affordable, reliable sources of energy that we have, which are coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, and large-scale hydro from dams, and move to diffuse, expensive, unreliable sources like wind and solar, or, you know, God forbid, biofuels where we're burning up the world's food in our gas mm. tanks. Um, uh, the, most of the environmental movement is insisting that we slow, stop, or reverse the conquest of poverty in nations around the world, and that we push people in currently developed nations back into poverty. There's a concept called fuel poverty or energy poverty that has become common in examining the impact of energy policies in Europe and Great Britain and Scandinavia. Britain adopted very stringent policies to move away from coal and natural gas for generating its electricity to wind and solar. <laughs> kind of laughable that Britain would depend on solar. Right? <laughs> uh, but uh, they adopted these policies in, from basically about 2002 up through 2008, 9, 10, and have stuck with them since then. Well, those caused such an increase in energy prices in Britain that they forced a large number of people into what they determined, uh, they, they defined as energy poverty, which is a situation where Britons spend at least 10% of their income just on heating their homes in the winter. And a consequence of that was that for the years 2007 through 2012, the number of excess premature winter deaths annually increased first by about 20, then by about 25, then by about 30, then by about 40,000 per year. Oh, my gosh. And that's out of a population of about 65 million. In a, in a climate that's much milder than much of North America's climate, and particularly the United States climate, if we had a similar situation here out of a population of 330 million in a much more severe winter climate, 
we would see not an extra 30 or 40,000 premature winter deaths every year. But, um, well, you could figure probably at least seven or eight times that many. Wow. This is, this is what's happening as advanced countries attempt to make this transition from fossil fuels to wind and solar. We're going to see potentially even worse this winter and next and possibly the next, not just in Great Britain, but all over Europe. Their electricity prices are rising much faster than they did in the period of the 2000s to early 2010s in Britain. A uh, similar thing happened, by the way, in Germany, very similar numbers as ratio of population to what happened in Great Britain. So what we're seeing is a demand that rich countries adopt policies that are going to drive their people at least far down from where they currently are in terms of prosperity. And they are attempting to impose these same policies on developing countries uh, where people still need to overcome poverty. There are roughly about uh, 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa right now have zero access to electricity. Roughly 2 billion people in the whole world mm. have zero access to electricity. Another 2 billion have only very intermittent access. Now think about the role of electricity in keeping your food from spoiling at home from a refrigerator, enabling you to communicate, enabling you to go to a hospital that can put you on machines that keep you alive after some traumatic incident. This is just tragic. Mm -hmm. And pulling those people out of that is a tremendous challenge and one that, apart from this movement, I think we could do, we could achieve within the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, from 1990 to 2015, we cut the rate of what the UN defines as extreme poverty, uh, living on the equivalent of about $1.75 per person per day. We cut the rate of extreme poverty around the world from almost 50% to about 9%. Wow. If it weren't for the climate alarmist movement, I think we could cut it you know, down to around 1% within another decade or so. Wow. Uh, but the movement is frustrating that. Wow. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Beisner. That was excellent. We appreciate all your work and thank you for taking the time, introducing yourself and the organization, offering such a helpful summary on some of the actual science and a sound perspective that militates against governmental and media climate alarmism. Of course, we encourage listeners to visit the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation website at cornwallalliance.org, your other media, and the resources which we've linked in the show notes. And we'll end there. After recording our interview, Regnery released the title of Drs. Beisner and Legate's forthcoming book, Climate and Energy, The Case for Realism, to be published this April. And we link to that and to info on the mentioned climate conference in Orlando 
the 23rd through 25th February. To keep this episode at about an hour, we've edited down some of Dr. Beisner's introductory remarks, so be sure to check out the episode page at reformedlibertarians.com slash 010 for a bonus audio with Dr. Beisner's fuller introduction. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.